millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School. We are the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. And I am delighted to welcome today as my co-host, Jill Shepard. Jill was a previous guest on the Populism Pod that we produced a few weeks ago weeks back. She is a lecturer at the ANU School of Politics and International Relations. Uh, She's got expertise in Australian government and governance, internet politics and political participation. And I'm delighted to announce as well that Jill is going to be a regular presenter on the pod from here on in. I feel like I've just signed a major player transfer for like the Lionel Messi of the ANU media world. Welcome, Jill. Thanks, Martin. I'm not making messy money, which is, you know, Uh, So I don't know how that analogy works at all, really. But thank you for that way too kind introduction. So what have you been up to since you helped demystify populism for us? Well, we've just released a big survey of values in Australia in which we found that about a third of uh, Australians between uh, sort of the ages of 18 and 40 are pretty happy with the idea of having a leader that doesn't have to deal with elections and parliaments. So uh, I, I don't know that I've been, been demystifying populism at all. I think I'm probably uh, throwing some results out into the world that suggest that we're kind of happy with this descent into authoritarianism that we're seeing around the world. So that's happy news. That is happy news. Well, we're going to be talking about the sort of changing nature of politics today. We because, are. because today we're taking a look at a recent sea change in Australian politics, perhaps I should call it a tree change, uh, because it's one that's happening far from the major coastal cities. Rural Australia cops more than its fair share of stereotypes. People living in the country are often referred to as bogans or sort-of-the-earth characters or, when it comes to politics, rusted-on voters. Uh, Just the other day, actually, I read a tweet, which I'll leave unattributed, which seemed to blame rural Australian voters for the country's inaction on climate change. Um, But as we'll hear today, rural Australians are, in fact, deserting the major parties Mm. in greater numbers than their city counterparts. And they're not just abandoning status quo politics, but they're actually finding new ways of inspiring community action and taking policy change into their own hands. So what are urban policymakers getting wrong about rural voters and what policy lessons can we take from the countryside and apply to the whole country? We've got a fantastic lineup of guests to help us explore this topic. First of all, I'd like to introduce Gabriel Chan. Gabriel is a writer for Guardian Australia. Uh, he's been a journalist for 30 years, including as a former political correspondent. Uh, her latest book, which is actually the inspiration for this podcast, it's called Rusted Off, Why Country Australia is Fed Up. It was released in September this year. I would absolutely recommend you give it a read. Welcome, Gabriel. Thanks, Martin. 
next up is Peter Holding. Peter is a third generation farmer in southeast New South Wales, growing crops such as canola and wheat, as well as running sheep for wool. He is on the board of Directors for Farmers for Climate Action, an alliance of farmers who are working to see the agricultural sector get support and investment to adapt to a changing climate, as well as be part of the solution. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Next up is Carolyn Hendricks. Carolyn is an associate professor at here at Crawford School. She's got a background in both political science and environmental engineering, and her research is broadly concerned with how to strengthen citizen agency in the governance of collective problems. She's made substantial contributions to international debates on the practice and theory of citizen engagement, democratic innovation, and deliberative democracy. Hello. Hi, Martin. And last but certainly not least is Dennis Ginevan. Dennis is the president of Voices for Indi, a community organisation in the Victorian electorate of Indi that seeks to encourage citizens to engage and participate in politics and democracy. Uh, Voices for Indi is famous, of course, for helping elect Cathy McGowan uh, in 2013 and 2016, twice defeating Liberal frontbencher Sophie Mirabella. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you very much, Martin. We're going to dive into the conversation in a second. But before we do, a quick reminder to our listeners, please do get in contact with us. We are really interested to get your thoughts on what we talk about today or on any of our podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum, or just shoot us through an email. Go old school. Podcast at policyforum.net. And stick around after the main discussion, because we're going to be going over some of your questions or comments from previous podcasts or posts that have been up on our website. Okay, so let's dive in. And Gabriel, today we're talking about rural Australia. And I want to start with you. We hear all sorts of stereotypes about people from the country. Bogans, they support Pauline Hanson, they hate foreigners, they've never travelled outside of their own little parts of the country and so on. You're a journalist, you've worked in the press gallery, but you live in a rural area yourself. Could you paint a bit of a picture for us about the sorts of people who live in these rural areas? Is there any truth to any of the stereotypes? There's always a little bit of truth to a stereotype. I mean, that's where it develops from. Um, But I guess as someone who had a totally city-suburban upbringing, I really wanted to to break those stereotypes and, and talk in a little more nuance about um, what I saw in my little country town, which is about 2,000 people, Harden Murrumburra. It's 90 minutes west of Canberra. So the stereotypes that we always see in the media are either, as you said, the, the rednecks or the salt-of-the-earth types, and obviously there's a lot of people in between. Um, another key stereotype is that all of country Australia is about farming and agriculture because, of course, farmers have been so effective in uh, in building, you know, the political party that they built, the country party that became the national party. Um, and so everything tends to look through that lens of, of agriculture. Obviously, there's a lot of people in towns um, and increasingly so where uh, they don't have a connection to agriculture as agriculture requires less and less workers. So, that yeah, there's all sorts of um, stereotypes, but there's a whole lot of people that run the towns, that run the schools, that clean in the hospitals, that never get a, a look in in Australian politics as far as I can see. Carolyn, maybe I could turn to you. What do we actually mean by rural Australia? 
anyway. Are we talking about, you know, satellites to major cities like Yas, or are we talking about sizable towns like Toowoomba, or do we only mean sort of isolated inland areas with tiny populations? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, Martin. I mean, I guess this term rural Australia is also something that's full of stereotypes. So, um, you know, we often hear about remote and rural Australia, but actually there's large areas of rural Australia that are peri-urban. Um, and then we have lots of coastal towns that, that aren't agricultural towns, but they might be considered rural in, in, in sort. So I think, you know, the, the strength of Gabriel's book is it really starts to unpack some of these stereotypes and looks at um, not just these ideas of rural, but also what does it mean to be a regional town um, and the differences and nuances in those kinds of communities. So I think this lends itself really nicely to something to just something that I've heard you talk about before, Gabby, and that I want to sort of, I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I've got this theory at the moment that the parties are really badly aligned, that we are just moving ahead of where the parties are. The Liberal Party doesn't make any sense. That's not a cohesive ideology anymore. The Liberal Party doesn't have a cohesive kind of electorate anymore. Uh, There is no cohesive remote or rural uh, constituency or stereotype. Is that why you think rural voters in particular, because we know all voters across Australia, I'm getting fed up with the parties, right? Do you think that's why rural voters in particular are getting fed up, that they don't feel represented by the major parties anymore, including the Nats? That's partly it. I think there's a confusion about uh, the role of country people now. um, Country people have played a very large part in the Australian imagination. Uh, And so you get these kind of conflicting signals as someone who lives in a rural area that you're, you're, you know, either totally integral, the backbone of the nation, as politicians like to say, but then also that you're rednecks and that you, you know, the message of economic rationalism or neoliberalism um, has been, you know, if if you're too small, get out mm. as a farmer. If you haven't got a job in a country town, move to a city. Um, so there's this kind of conflicting idea in, in people's minds about where they are. Um, the other thing is, of course, the nature of the coalition where you have liberal uh, a liberal philosophy um, that's all about business and, and the National Party and they're, they're some of the richest and poorest seats in the country. Mm. And so how you marry those two interests is really kind of impossible. Well, you have a coalition agreement that no one's allowed to see, well, I think, right. right? And yeah. this is part of the, the problem, right? There's this lack of transparency, yep. which leads me to ask you, Dennis, and I, I do probably have to lay this on the table at the moment. I used to work for a federal agriculture minister, and I thought we did a pretty good job of representing country areas, but obviously not because something like Voices for Indi took off. Can you tell me a little bit about how that started and sort of what was the imperative behind it? It's easy to not like your local member. It's another thing altogether to round up a group of like-minded people to actually do something about it. Yeah, and I think – thanks, Jill. I think I think the, um, the, the trigger in a way was certainly – part of it was how we're being represented. But it was also a sense of, well – I remember one of my daughters looking me straight in the eye and said, is this as good as it gets? Mm. Is this how, are you happy with the way this is going? So there was also a sense of um, uh, people feeling, well, we are responsible for our own politics. So that, and, and, and thus we get what we deserve if you, you know, carry that through. And 
I think there was a trigger in us in ourselves that we well, what can we do to actually improve this to not have a, a cynical and negative view of politics mm. but rather work towards a finding a way where people can get in a conversation can be respected f- for having a view irrespective of what how it may differ to others um, and work towards sort of a, a, a common a sense of what people have in common first as, as opposed to what people have got in difference so um, that's what happened is that we we did start this process we got we got lots and lots of people involved in discussions that, that were that were facilitated we had a, a someone who's in charge of the uh, the the discussion so that it didn't turn into look you need to all stop because I'm right and therefore you must be wrong you know we, we just weren't going to go to that sort of space but rather to respect everyone who who would make a comment about their their view on something we'd record it and it'd end up in a report that captured what everyone said so that report, had praises all through it that actually captured what everyone said in broad terms. So that's what we then put, put that report together um, and then gave a copy of it to everyone who was standing in the 2013 federal election uh, as a way of saying this is what people in Indi are mm. talking about, If, if you, if, particularly those who don't have input into a party structure. And so that's sort of the the start point, I guess, Jill. To and then what Kathy McGowan there. responded positively to that? Well, Cathy, well, from that process... When when we started, all we were thinking is, what can we do to um, engage? Yep. And then then we started to get um, a sense of there was maybe an opportunity, or people were suggesting, if we can't find a, a representative who would respond or capture what it is that was being said, let's find someone. So then, Kathy, we we called for people to uh, express an interest in standing, uh, and Kathy um, got the gig. You know, so to speak, and and but and she, and she has carried that idea, her 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 style of representative community representative politics, uh, I believe, quite strongly into through two terms now. And so, Voices for Indi, we're not the campaign team, nor are we a political, you know, playing party politics mm. or anti-party politics. We're trying to be pro-community. Carolyn, we study this stuff. You more probably so than me. I do public opinion, but this is like best practice politics. What's it like? Being an Indi on the ground, seeing as it an insider, because we are, you know, ivory tower kind of economists, right? Uh, um, we're, we're ivory tower a- academics, right? We don't get <laughs> to see this stuff, you know, play out in real life. Yeah, so um, that that's why I found the the Indi electorate so fascinating, um, because on on one level they're actually just doing what representative democracy is designed mm. to do. They're, they're they're actually strengthening the linkages between the constituents and the elected representative. And it's amazing how much we just take that linkage for granted in the way our representative systems of democracy work. And when you dig deeper, and some of our colleagues have, um, about what what this constituency relationship actually involves, you know, for many of our MPs, it's a very shallow form of public engagement. And when you compare it to what the public sector does, and indeed the corporate sector, it's quite... Um, yeah, it's quite revealing that our MPs are, are probably not as professional at doing public engagement as you might think. So someone like Kathy McGowan and, and my interviews with her and also following the work of um, Voices for Indi um, have basically just revealed that that this kind of participatory constituency relation, is it's not rocket science. And in fact, the simplicity of it and the replicability of it is what is magic because it actually doesn't rely on elite consultants coming in and running participatory processes. It's community-driven, it's community-led, 
Um, and it's not all about processes. I know that have been very important, but there's other things, particularly that Cathy's been doing, which is to bring her constituents to Canberra. So she's tried mm. to unlock um, the mystique of Canberra by actually saying, well, if you're interested in this issue, come to Canberra, come and see how Parliament works. Let me introduce you to the people that might be able to help you with that issue. So it's actually a, a full model of empowerment, actually. So you say it's not rocket science, but why is it the major parties aren't doing it if it's so simple? Well, I think there's a, a big elephant in the room, which we haven't really got to yet, which is the party, the party machinery, and the erosion, the lack, you know, the, 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 the fact that the people aren't joining as members to these parties. So the parties are the, the the major institution of collective representation in representative democracy. And at the moment, what we have is more people joining football clubs in Australia than belonging to, are formally belonging to a political party. So there's this very small number of those that vote actually formally members of parties. And so parties have to rely on other ways of understanding those they represent. So that can either happen, I guess, through MPs and their constituencies, plus parties doing more to actually connect with those that vote with them or for them. And one of our colleagues, Annika Galger, she's doing some interesting work on how parties are trying to reach out and do more participatory work. Um, but I think they're a long way from the sort of very ground and grassroots of options that, that you see in places like Indi and and in other parts of the world in Spain where citizens are driving um, and bringing inputs to those that are representing them. So I think the parties are still um, trying to win elections as opposed mm. to listen. Peter, I'd like to turn to you and we'll talk about climate change in a minute. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts on any other reasons why you think rural voters are sort of turning away from the major parties. Um, I think <clears throat> possibly um, many of us have got the same aspirations in the rural area, whether you're on the on the land in the farm or running a business in town or whatever you might be doing in small country towns. I think a lot of the problem from my point of view is um, there isn't enough communication going on um, between people. It's a busy, you know, everybody's busy these days and, and a lot of the media you get is um, heavily biased one way or the other. So it's hard to find... Uh, um, common thoughts and to be able to discuss them. But I think that in the end leads people to become frustrated. Um, they feel they're not being listened to. They know for a fact that their small country towns are shrinking. They see that happening every day, businesses closing. They see farmers you know, packing up, the droughts impacting on everybody. So I think at the end of the day, they become just so frustrated, they, they, they tend to switch off, which is unfortunate, in that they, be, they just refuse to participate. Uh, and that leads them into, um, as we all know, we all have to vote. So they they vote for anybody or anything. We're trying to uh, provide a pathway, a bit like the Indy model, where people can discuss um, issues. Um, obviously, we're interested in climate change, but part of that is just how we, we released a report looking at what we see as the future of rural Australia, and we'd like people just to discuss it. It doesn't have the answers in it, doesn't really have a lot of information about what we think the answer is, but it gives you um, discussion points on where we think the discussion should go. And we would like to have that discussion because um, we could end up with a completely different model of rural Australia if we just all continue going the way we're going. So we've heard from Dennis about what inspired the setting up of Voices for Indi, but what about Farmers for Climate Action? What was the inspiration for that? Um, pretty much self-interest, I suppose. I mean, that drives most things. I mean, I, I got into this because I've been interested in um, 
where the environment is going for a long time and farmers are pretty innovative. I always find it amusing when they say farmers need to adapt because I don't think they can adapt any faster mm-hmm. than what they're doing. Um, we've gone from um, in the 1980s when I started farming, <clears throat> tearing up land and ploughing it and cultivating it and harrow- harrowing it and then sowing it, you know, many workings and lots of diesel, to now nearly, I can't think of anybody that doesn't um, direct drill and quite a few are stubble retaining and you know, rotational grazing, all sorts of techniques, all using um, satellite GPS tracking and you know, working their machinery. So you know, farmers are going as fast as they can, but I could sort of see that we were losing, I, I still think we're losing the battle. And so as a vested interest, I started working on that. I got invited to become a climate champion and that was a bit of a junket. We went around the country <laughs> and looked at people's farms. It was great fun. Um, but we were looking at innovative ways of, of bringing ideas back to our community or, or trying to do it. But anyway, we, we got too big for our boots and suggested to the Victorian Liberal Party that they should do something about climate change and promptly we had our funding cut, uh, as you do in, in politics in Australia these days. Uh, but you know, a good few of us then decided, well, that's not really the end of it. Um, so we held a meeting and Form farmers for climate action, and you know we're just trying to uh, be scientifically evidence-based and provide education and and knowledge out there for people about what's likely to happen or what could happen, and see if we can get a response and drive something forward. Well, this is this is breaking all kinds of stereotypes, and we're talking about you know sort of archetypal farmers, but you're talking about science and innovation, and that's not what we expect. I think we have this view that in a lot of ways, rural Australians are behind the times. Right. This is, you know, no, absolutely no disrespect on my part. I think it's a sort of broadly held view. I think increasingly, though, uh, constituents, voters, citizens, whatever we want to call them across the country are moving rapidly ahead of politicians, that we are just decades ahead. Are you seeing this uh, particularly with regard to farmers and climate change? Oh, absolutely. Like the we used to worry about trying to get the government to change policy on climate change so we could have a we still would like a price on carbon, but it's gone past that. People are just putting in renewable energy as fast as they can. It doesn't really... And they're not doing it because they want to save the world. They're doing it because they want to save their bills. Mm. Um, and it's it's pretty obvious that that's the way it's going to go. I have some issues with how that leaves the poorer parts of our community and where they end up in this debate. But, you know, the governments are trying to catch up, I think, or they will be. Um, mm. I expect the next election to be a climate change election. Um, a bit like Wentworth was. There'll be other issues, but this drought isn't gone. And by the time we get round to March, April, May, it's likely to be very severe. And so who knows? I'm hoping that people won't abandon everything and, and vote for sort of what I would call the lunatic fringe. But, you know, we need to find a good, honest people like Cathy McGowan. I mean, I find what she does with taking some of her constituents and letting them work in her office for a you know, a couple of days or however long they do it for. I mean, I think people just don't understand how politics works in mm. this country and how how they how they can have influence if if they get themselves just a little bit organised. That, that's such an interesting um, point mm. that um, watching political parties for as long as I have um, too long. <laughs> You know, they hold their cards very close to their chest. There's no sharing. So they jealously guard all their information, as you would know, with polling and and any other strategic information, right? The weird thing about the Voices mob was that they came out 
did this thing, got McGowan across the line and then said, okay, who needs information? Like, we'll share all of this and they've run, you know, how many workshops, Dennis, now? I'd say 10. And this open kind of model, open source model where you share, like, I think the National Party were at one stage going to come to the first workshop, but they decided that was a bad look. But, but, you know, the idea that you would welcome all political parties, I think, was a really, really innovative way to think Mm. about politics that hadn't been thought – it hadn't happened. Well, there's a a theory in political science that parties are starting to act like cartels, so that the Liberal and Labor Party are just like Mobile and BP or they're just like uh, Woolies and Coles. And they're a closed shop, and you've obviously found this, Dennis. Well, yeah, I think I think um, from the from the ground floor up, from the community, and that's you could possibly say that's the top of the of the tree, not the not the ground floor. But a lot of people don't care about that. They they uh, people live in their life, living in a community. They need resources and uh, capacity to do what they want to do. But if you don't mind, Jill, can I just go back to that energy thing for a moment, just following on from what Peter said, and that was that. Um, in relation to community, uh, I'm, I'm involved with a group called Totally Renewable Yakandanda, which um, is a, a Yakandanda is a town. It's not yep. a, it's not a vegetable or something like that. Yeah, I'm from Victoria. Um, yep. And anyway, the thing is that they they've actually decided they've got a goal to be 100% renewable by 2022 as a town. So that they'll be using they'll be generating more power in that town than what they're using via renewable. And is the town townspeople happy with this? Yeah, they're very. They're Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And they've they've come a long way, and it's all happened both voluntarily and then and then in partnership with a corporation. But government has not been part of this thing, and we would argue they're sort of way behind where it is that people who who think about this stuff are at, and where they're what's capable of mm. being undertaken. So in our case, we've formed a, a, co- a cooperation with a, an entity called Osnet Services, which is the the Big poles and wires corporation in our region, and they are our, our partner to deliver the community goal of being hundred percent renewable by twenty twenty two. So I'm just saying that as a, as, as a, in relation to Peter was speaking about the farmers and their capacity to do this, some communities are also getting there. Yeah. And there's also I know there are strategies where there, there's what we call people who are say, either renting or social housing. They have a, a different. Um, uh, capacity to go renewable and so we're looking at we're trying and I think lots of other people are trying to find ways in which we can in, ensure that people who don't have a lot of income uh, don't get left behind in this in this transition um, and you know I th- it's really uh, it's pretty positive it's a good mm. story and I should say just following linking it back to the pol- politics thing for a moment but in, in within Indi, the federal seat, um, there's about 20 towns that have community groups that are, are now part of a an Indi-wide connectivity. Some are more advanced than others in their renewable energy goals. But uh, Kathy McGowan has proposed a totally renewable Indi. 
Uh, so sh- she's not actually doing all the work to make that happen, but she's certainly providing leadership and talking into Parliament about what is possible uh, in, in rural communities. So that's in some ways ahead of the pack mm. in relation to urban settings. <clears throat> I was just going to add to what Dennis was saying about leadership. I think that's um, part of the problem we have in rural Australia in the sense that that um, we've lost a lot of our, our better leaders. They've, uh, you know, the younger children, whatever you love, young adults are leaving to go to university and a mm. good few of them don't come back. Um, and therefore we lose a generation of, um, of uh, innovation and leadership. And I think a lot of the problem is just that um, some of the people trying to lead us now are just not leaders. They're just... Um, they're just mouthpieces for, for whatever the organisation they're working for. But I think if we can find um, some good quality leadership, I think the, the, the situation is right for people to fight for their towns and their communities. Carolyn, do you think that's a lesson for Australian politics? And have you got any other suggestions? Look, I think that's actually a, a really important point, this whole building leadership capacity. And actually, if you look at the, the region of Indi, so there's some seeds that were planted you know, 30, 40 years ago mm. with some Alpine young leadership programs. Yep. Alpine, Valleys Alpine Valleys Community Leadership Program. I'll get the plug in there. <laughs> so, you know, these are programs that, you know, aimed at both youth and also um, the broader community around building leadership capacity. And that's, so, so in other words, you're not generating leaders overnight. This is something that's a long-term process. But through those leadership programs, people form networks. They've, they realise there's resources in the community. And I think actually, I know the seed was planted in 2013, but actually these these leadership seeds were planted decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know there's programs in Melbourne to do the same sort of thing in leadership, building female capacity and, and getting women into, into politics. But we need to think about this beyond rural towns, beyond women, and actually in the whole kind of community of Australia, how can we build leaders that actually have the capacity to lead and not just win elections or win party battles? Well, I mean, it's tied very closely with civil society, isn't it? And and when we see civil society institutions breaking down, then, yeah, opportunities to lead and and to, I guess, blood yourself into politics without being a staffer to kind of disappear. What do you think about this, Gabby? Yeah, I think the most exciting um, trend in this area is actually around women's leadership. Um, That capacity building that's been happening the last couple of decades is really taking hold now amongst rural communities that I see. And their networks um, that include things like the Australian Rural Leadership Program and the Rural Women's Awards, uh, you know, talk about six degrees of separation. They're like half a degree of separation between those um, country women. And they are the ones that are going outside the traditional advocacy groups in rural areas to just like break the rules and say, you know what, if you're not going to work with me, I'll build my own model. And and you saw it happen with the Victorian Women's Trust in Victoria um, that got a lot of advocacy going. uh, And I just think it's the most exciting thing. And and I don't think it's any, um, it's it's not a coincidence that people like um, Cathy McGowan have come out of that model. Um, they're inspiring other women also in metropolitan areas. I think Karen Phelps would have looked at McCowan's at, uh, example pretty closely. And you're already seeing a rash of r- rural women independence in the Victorian state election. I think it'll happen in New 
New South Wales and I think it'll happen in, in federal uh, the federal election in 2019. I think those links between, say, and it's tempting to tie everything back to Wentworth, but there's there's common threads here, absolutely, oh, absolutely. right? absolutely. One yeah. of it is women getting things done. Yeah. And, but I think the big thing is just people turning their backs on the parties. Yeah. And, it, and it's this stream that, that is sort of holding us all together at the moment. And and you go back to the beginning where we started was why is why are people rusting off? Those sort of integrity issues, the trust issues, are the things that are actually uniting the crossbenchers, minor parties, and independents. Um, they all agree on a fed, pretty much a federal corruption commission. They all agree agreed on the bank royal commission mm. well before Labor came on board. Those. Issues around integrity and trust are really big. So we've heard a lot about some of the changes that are happening, both positive and negative, in these communities. Where's all this going? What's how is this going to play out over the next few years, particularly in the area of sort of uh, federal politics? Uh, well, who would I? <laughs> I would not be game to predict, given <laughs> you know what's happened in the last decade in politics. But I, I actually am optimistic about the future. I think um, you know. Uh, all of these examples of positive engagement are a good thing. Um, I, w- I, I wouldn't discount um, more hung parliaments, mm. um, even though, you know, obviously the polls are pointing to a bit of a landslide for Shorten. Um, I, I think there's still a capacity for people to just go with independent and minor parties more. And I think there's a lot of people in that space, who uh, Peter referenced it earlier, who are thinking about, you know, how to make this a positive, um, a thing about positive representation rather than kind of the protest vote and just like uh, there's a group called Anyone But Nats, you know, um, the the idea that, you know, anyone would be better than the current. Sometimes it's not the case, as we've seen in America. Um, so will we get multi-party coalitions, you know, European style, where if if you've got hung parliaments, Jill Shaheen. No, <laughs> no, I'm going to give you the very kind of hardline political yeah. science answer. Yeah. No, we're not, because we're just not set up that way institutionally. Right. But we're yeah. going to see more independence, absolutely. Yeah. And I don't think it's a protest vote. I mm. think it's a, you are genuinely better than the major parties at the moment. Mm. I, th- I look at women coming to the fore, and I, because I get around a fair bit in lots of different committees. And interestingly enough, being an old guy, um, I think uh, what I find is that the women are not part of the old boys group. I don't know why that is. I just can't figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) Let's workshop that. But but that just opens up the discussion. When you bring women onto a board, into a group, you know, especially like some of the old rural groups that have just all been dominated by men, it really opens up. It's like a fresh air, like springtime. You know, like just I think that is going to change things. You know, the women, the girls these days just will not tolerate being put down, and I yeah. rightfully agree. They need to stand up. They need to learn to fight a bit harder, I think. I, I mean, I see so many good women being dominated, and I think they need men to fight for them too, I think, to stop some of the crap that's going on. But if we can get those women through that sort of – through that jump um, – I don't think you'll recognise the country. I think you've mm. nailed that, Peter. Mm. Dennis? Well, I think I'm in agreement with, with Peter. I, I think that and, – and the one of the projects we undertook a few months ago was a, a weekend workshop called uh, Getting Elected to Represent Your Community. There's an idea. 
and uh, you know. Um, but what it was, it was a weekend, we sort of did like a 360 around what are sort of like the top 15, 20 issues that a person considering standing in politics may, we suggest, may need to be, be good at having access to be able to think about some of those issues. And also people who are supporting someone, someone close, like could be a, a, maybe a campaign manager or a partner, people who'd want to um, support someone else to stand. So we did all sorts of um, topics like, you know, ethics and campaigning and working with media and what's it like for a federal, state or local politician, young people. Had all these presentations which we're hoping to put on our, um, on our website and uh, like a podcast yep, uh, like this. But to actually create opportunities for people. And I should say, of, of all the people who went to that thing, there's now about nine women who are standing for state politics in Victoria or in New South Wales now and one who's supporting a group that may lead to someone a stand. So I guess what the, you know, when you're asking what's the future look like, we've got to be able to have convince people that we've got their back. It's the community mm. as a responsibility to support someone to stand, irrespective if they're in a party or not, but certainly when they're not in a, a resourcing party, there's got to be a, a community... Uh, capability to bring them along, support them along the way. Carolyn? Absolutely. And I was at that forum and it was really inspiring. I think one of the women that I met, you know, emergency doctor who had decided that she was seeing a lot of um, failures of the health system presenting at um, the emergency department. Um, and she decided that actually the best way to to address those was not so much to be in the emergency department full time, but to split her time as a as a local uh, member on the council and also work as a doctor. I mean, these are the sorts of things that people are realising that they can they can step into politics. Um, she's twenty six years old. I mean, it's it's amazing. Mm-hmm. So these are these are people and and young men as well who are just deciding that um, they can actually step forward and and there's a there's there's community resources and capacity building opportunities for them to do that. Well, we are almost out of time, but I just want to ask one final quick question to all of you. Uh, is there, if, if you could offer one piece of advice to Australian politicians that um, beyond the obvious one of don't ignore rural Australia, what would it be? Perhaps if we start with you, Dennis. Well, I think it's in their interest, in, in our politicians' interest to harness the energy and capability, capability of their own community, our, our national community, because to not listen to that is to really uh, shortchange our national direction and strategic uh, position. So that's that would be my, my, in my uh, in a summary nutshell answer to your question, Martin. But thank you for that. Great, Carolyn. Yeah, I think the word "listen" for me is is key here. To to not be afraid to connect with the community, and when you do connect, um, be willing to listen. Peter. Well, I'm looking for a more wholesale politician and get rid of the clowns in the place. I I really think (laughs) what we need is uh, more honesty and more ethics. Mm. I I just cannot believe some of the uh, blatant mistruths that they think the public will will swallow. And I don't think the public swallow them. I just don't think the public's quite yet worked out how to deal with them. I was asked by by someone in government about this question and I'm thinking of all these complex ways that government could engage with community and there could be this link between government and community and then I thought, hang on, that's your local MP, right? I would say to them, choose your community over your party and if you do that, the community will actually choose the party 
if the member reflects that. But too often they're scared, as Peter says, to choose their community and stand up for their community. And in the process, they lose the loyalty of the voter because the voter says, well, if you're not out looking out for me, I'm not going to look out for you. I mean, one shame is that we is that Barnaby Joyce has sort of, uh, I guess, ended in, probably not ended, but, you know, is in such sort of bad form at the moment because that was what he built his career on. Yeah. Crossed the floor 27 yeah. times or something. Yeah. No one else is going to do that for a little while. We're all gun shy again. Well, there's plenty of positive notes to be ending on there. So I'd like to draw this to a close and say thank you to all of you for a really fascinating discussion. It's great to have such a broad range of perspectives on this really important issue. So thank you all. Thank you. Thanks very much. All right, so thanks once again to our guests. It was a really fascinating discussion, I thought. And we are really interested to hear your thoughts about what we talked about today. You can get in contact with us, of course, on Twitter, Apps Policy Forum. Find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. Or just shoot us through an email, podcast at policyforum.net. And regular listeners will know that at the end of each podcast, we answer some of those questions and respond to some of those comments that have been sent in. And I want to do that now. I've still got Jill with me. Um, before we get on to those comments, what did you think of that discussion, Jill? Well, last time I was here, we were talking about populism and it was grim. And then in this, in the meantime, I've done all this survey work and all the findings are really grim. That was really positive. Wasn't that great? I thought it was really exciting and quite empowering to yeah, hear some of this I stuff. Yeah, I feel empowered. I feel like I need to go and yell at people to start organising community groups. Now, they're not going to listen to me, but it's it's what we think about when we think about democracy. It's exactly what should be happening and it hasn't happened well, I guess it is happening. That's the moral of the story, right? It's just that we don't publicise it and we don't talk about it. So we need to get better at getting around people and telling them these stories. It's interesting, the political conditions that must that, that must have caused this. We needed the parties to be dreadful. They've, you know, that they've um, ponied up and done that <laughs> and it's worked, right? If, if we totally pull out uh, if, if political parties totally vacate the field, people will step up. Do you think that political parties can regain this field? Because they've obviously, like judging by our discussion today, they've obviously lost a lot of ground. I used to be really optimistic and it's I'm losing it. I think the parties at the moment are really confused. They are groups of factions that don't quite know how they fit together. And until they sort that out, I don't know that they can actually go out to anywhere, let alone rural and and regional areas in Australia, and tell them what they stand for and and promise them that they can represent them meaningfully because they're not physically able at the moment. Well, there you go. You've heard our thoughts on it. So what are your thoughts? Let us know uh, on all of those uh, ways to contact us that I spelled out before. So now let's dive into some of those comments that we have received over the last week or two. And the first was a comment from Bo, and he was responding to the podcast that we put out called Sanctioning Myanmar. Uh, It was Edwina Landau's brief podcast, and she interviewed Trevor Wilson. Um, And Bo writes... 
Hi, congratulations on bringing someone with real knowledge of the situation. I've been in Myanmar for a few decades. I met Trevor when he was an Aussie ambassador and have worked in the Rakhine since 1995 as a consultant with the UN, Red Cross and NGO organisations setting up safe and efficient marine transport operations. It was truly refreshing to hear someone with actual knowledge on the situation making clear commentary on what is going on at present. At present. Thank you. Well, I am really glad you enjoyed it. I always enjoy listening to Trevor Wilson talk about the situation in Myanmar as well. I think he's a terrific analyst. The next one I want to go on and and touch on is the podcast that we put out quite recently where we spoke to Glenn Davies and Helen Sullivan. It was called, Is Australia's Policy Machinery Fit for Purpose? Uh, And in it, we spoke about how Australia can future-proof its public sector uh, for technological and social change. And there was a comment from Rick on Facebook, and he wrote, Until it regains independence and the ability to provide frank and fearless advice, unimpeded by ministerial advisors and politically appointed department heads on contract, it doesn't matter how good the motor or the parts are. What do you think about that, Jill? I think Rick's spot on, and I don't have any solutions whatsoever. I think this is a genuine problem that... Um, a lot of former public servants have talked about, but it's really hard to articulate. It's this idea that uh, bureaucrats in Canberra aren't necessarily left-wing or right-wing. It's that they're trying to get promoted, right? Like we all are. We're ambitious. And we thought that this would improve the quality of advice that ministers and, and departmental secretaries are getting. I think what we're finding instead is that everyone just tells their superior that they're doing a great job, boss. And that's that's a problem. But it's really hard to incentivize against that. So I think Rick's bang on, but I don't know how we get around it. So that's the frank and fearless part. Absolutely. But is it fair to say, you know, until the public service regains independence? I mean, that's kind of, you know, damning everyone, isn't it? Absolutely. And I don't think the problem is necessarily independence. It's, it's just this sense that the public service should be held aside a little bit. It's something a little bit special. Now, I don't know how we instill that in people because it's just a job like any other job and it's very hard to make people excited about their jobs. But traditionally, the civil service was seen as something, you know, that was nation building. And I don't know how we get that back apart from, I, I don't know, cultural education or something. You know, you can't teach that kind of stuff. And I don't know how we uh, can make policies that instill that kind of that kind of uh, nation-building sense of duty, I think. Well, these are big questions, and I'm sure they are, are questions that will be addressed in, in the Public Service Review, Absolutely. which we'll be reporting shortly. Uh, the next one I want to go to is another podcast, and it was the podcast that Quentin Grafton and Sharon Bessel did, where they interviewed Peter Yu, uh, and it was called A Vision for the North. And in it, we heard from Peter about the challenges facing Northern Australia and how to add some cultural substance to it. Uh, the somewhat vacuous policy history uh, when it comes to the development of the North. And there was a comment from Suzanne, and she writes, why can't we just leave it be? Why does everything have to be developed? Where do you stand on that? I kind of thought I was pro-development. And then I saw this comment from Suzanne, and I thought, you know what? I'm sick of hearing about Northern development. And it's it's not that we shouldn't be encouraging ideas, but we've been talking about this for as long as I can remember. And there's a trade-off here. At what point do we think maybe something's not a great idea? I don't know, right? I'm I'm going to, you know, sort of plead the host's prerogative and just throw questions out there. I don't know if we should still be trying to develop the North. It seems 
you know, I've been up there. It's red. It's dry. It's it's tough, right? It seems like an insurmountable problem, but we're obsessed with it as a nation. I mean, it should also be said that we're sat here in a studio in Canberra, you know, commenting on this. I mean, really, this is a decision for those local communities that in the in Northern Australia, right? Oh, absolutely. And we tend to have this problem, right? That you know, it's the the curse of being centralised in Canberra that we do control the purse strings in the federal government. We do try to tell the rest of the country how to run its life. And that's not always a problem. Sometimes it works quite efficiently. Sometimes when we're talking about northern development, yeah, it's absolutely a problem. Well, that was a great comment. So thanks very much for that, Suzanne. Actually, here it definitely got us thinking. And the last one I want to touch on is a comment from Jim. And Jim was talking about an article that went up on policyforum.net. It was called Crowding Out the Pacific. It was written by Matt Dornan, Richard Curtin, and Stephen Howes. And in it, uh, it, was, it looked at how Australia should look to follow New Zealand's example in ensuring its seasonal worker program isn't crowded out by underpaid backpackers. Uh, and Jim wrote, if Americans can start to think of immigration and labor policy as being connected, they should look here to see who Aussies and Kiwis get to pick their fruit and veg and how decent wages, visas, unions, regulation and government oversight play. And yes, it adds up to more expensive spinach. What do you reckon about that, Jill? Well, bless the US for always providing some kind of example by which we come, you know, which we come out of favourably, right? If it wasn't for the US, I wouldn't be able to teach uh, my Australian-born students, how great their you know their political institutions are, because I can always say, "Hey, look to Washington, we're doing great." Uh, Jim's got a good point. I think spinach is expensive. I'm not going to lie, and I, you've told me that I should grow my own. And it is very cheap and very easy <laughs> to grow spinach. But Jim makes a very salient point here, a very important and profound point, Martin, about uh, labour regulation and how good we do have it here for the most part. Even the fact that we're worried about. Um, we're worried about the conditions of, of visiting workers. I think speaks well, you know, speaks well of our industrial relations regime. We hand ring about this stuff a lot, and it's good that we do because we don't want you know underpaid workers in Australia, whether they're Australian or uh, you know temporary labour. This is a nice problem to have, but it's an important problem. Well, a big thank you to everyone who has commented and reminded us to keep sending them in. That includes suggestions for future episodes of Policy Forum Pod. We're always interested to hear your thoughts on that. You can reach us at Apps Policy Forum on Twitter, Asia Pacific Policy Society on Facebook, or just drop us a line, podcast at policyforum.net. And if you enjoyed today's episode, and I really hope you did, I did, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. And why wouldn't you? It only takes 30 seconds. All you need to do is find that fifth star. It'll be a huge help to us in getting word out about this podcast and uh, reinforce to my bosses that I deserve to be paid. <laughs> we'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. Thanks for listening. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media? 
source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 